Thanks. All right. Hey, it is really exciting for us to be here again. We're so thankful to be here with you all, truly. You mean so much to Angie, truly. I mean, and because you mean so much to her, you mean so much to us, too. And so we've experienced nothing but everything Angie said you guys were about. And I didn't think you guys could live up to the hype, but you surpassed it. You surpassed the hype. And as Nick was sharing about what you raised for the people in Colombia, I thought of this passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So he's speaking to these people, these, these Christians in the church in Corinth, and he's saying, Hey, I want you guys to know about these other Christians in Macedonia. He said, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And so what was happening is some of the churches had all sorts of needs. And, and Paul is saying, hey, you guys, I want to tell you about the Macedonians. This group, are, are they, even though they were having trials and they were in the midst of poverty, they had so much joy as, as a group that it just was overflowing. And even in the midst of trial and poverty, they had so much generosity. Yeah. And I thought of that when I heard about all the money you guys are raising for the people. And that is such a hallmark for what it is to be the people of God together in community like this. It, it's so cool. It's such a testimony, and it's really inspiring. And I just kind of wanted to lead with that because when I get done, I hope we'll have a little discussion on what it is to really be the community of God. So to do that, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 1. you find it right before chapter 2, and we will, I'll read this to you, okay? We're going to start at verse 2, okay, and then we're going to go through verse 14. This is so good, and in fact, what many people think is that when Paul wrote this, he really should not have written it. In fact, it was probably as he was writing it, it was really more of a song. It was like an eruption of praise to God. And it was just this joy that sort of came out of him. And so we almost do it in injustice just to read it. But believe me, I'm not going to sing for you. So I'll read it. And this is what Paul says to these group of Christians there. He says, hey, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the, cre- or before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect 
when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is absolutely astounding. This is one sentence he wrote. <laughs> Not kidding. I mean, in the original language, there's, I mean, this is one yeah, he just couldn't stop. I mean, he's just overflowing with this. And it, it's pretty amazing. You know, it, it's worth looking over again and again and again and seeing what's all in here. So I just wanted to share some things with you. But uh, maybe first, just asking, um, you know, consider, like, what has been something really cool that you were involved in, that you were a part of? Okay, and just sort of think about that. And as you think about that, I was... Thinking about, like, Drew, or, this is our son, Drew. Here's Drew. And my wife, Laura. My wife, Laura. And you all know Angie. So, uh, Drew and I were watching um, football last night, Monday Night Football. And uh, Drew's down, like, by 20-some points. Doesn't think he's going to win. And he's got this guy named Darren Waller, right? Fantasy football. Fantasy football. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Thank you. So, at any rate, uh, for the point of the story, this guy put up a ton of points and won the game basically for his team and for Drew. Way to go. Nice job. But uh, he's got a great story. Uh, before he was on this great all-star football team, the, the Raiders, he was kind of washed up. He was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. But the coach of the Raiders said, he just called up the general manager and said, sign him. He's ours. And he didn't care about his background at all. He said, sign him, he's ours. And so I'm thinking, Darren Waller, he's like the superstar now. Whereas before, nobody wanted anything to do with him. He was washed up. Nobody would touch him. And then somebody came along and said, no, he's one of us now. And I think it's such a cool story. And he's loving life. And he's, he's winning for his team. He's winning for my son. He's winning for a lot of people. But it's a great story of what it is to be in something, right? And you can probably guess he's so thrilled to be in the Raiders organization. The, the difficulty with that, though, and any sort of thing we are in in our world, is that if he gets hurt, what are they going to say? You're out. You're in now. As long as you keep performing for us. But the moment you can't, you're out. And that's how it is, right? Whether we're working for the Raiders or we are working for a boss somewhere, present company excluded. <laughs> but, you know, we get, we get kind of in this performance trap. And it's sort of like to be in feels so conditional and there's so much pressure to always be in. And to stay. So it's like once you get in, then there's all this pressure to stay in. You know, and I remember I, I worked at a psych hospital once when I was in grad school, and, and I worked uh, part of we had this uh, um, anorexia eating disorder wing. And, and so I remember meeting with these girls, and, and they were so thin. 
And some of them were on, on the brink of death. And I would say, okay, draw me a picture of yourself. And they'd draw a big head with a big circle, you know, for the body. And it was just, it just tore me up. It was so sad to see. And I saw pictures of them before they had their eating disorder. And they were really, these just really pretty girls. And I'm like, how does this happen? But then I realized they had so much praise for their performance or their looks. Mm -hmm. And they felt so much pressure to have to maintain that. That was their identity, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it was eating them up or probably not the best way to put it, but eating them up. They were dying from not eating. Because yeah. they wanted, that. that's the pressure of having to stay in. And I think that's why Paul is writing this in Ephesians, because what he's telling us is the absolute most powerful, best prepositional phrase you will ever hear in your life. You and I, based on nothing we've done, because Jesus always did for us all that we could not do for ourselves. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe you remembered that. <laughs> We are in Christ. And you and I did absolutely nothing to get there. And we can do nothing to ever lose it. No matter how bad yours and my performance, there is nothing we can ever do to lose it. And that's why I think Paul is saying this. And he's so excited. This is the best news for the world, yeah. right? And so it also means more, I think, coming from Paul. Because when he starts off in, in verse 2... He's saying uh, you know, grace and praise to you uh, from God our Father and through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a guy saying grace and peace to you. Now, if I said, hey, grace and peace to you, that'd be cool, right? <laughs> but consider who this guy is and where he's writing grace and peace to you. He's, he's writing from prison. This is a guy who was a total outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. This is a guy who was beaten up, shipwrecked. He was actually, you know, we know how Jesus was flogged, right? He was flogged for his faith in Jesus. I mean, having his, his skin really being literally ripped off for him in the name of this guy he calls God the Father and Jesus Christ his son. It's in that context, in that sequence of events in his life, he comes to them and he says, grace and peace to you from this guy who's only caused pain and persecution in my life. That's pretty stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. There is grace and peace to us no matter what can happen to us. Mm. And, and then he lays out, I think in these verses 3 through 14, he lays out why. Because everything you and I have in Christ is absolutely amazing. And so I want us to hear it. I'm just going to kind of try to rifle through it because I want to talk about what that means for us as a community and then let you guys sort of wrestle with that. What are the implications of that as a community of believers together? So what he says, basically, the first thing he says, this is so exciting because you are in Christ. And the first thing we see in verses 3 through 6 is that we are, we are recipients of divine election. God elected us. He chose us. And he, this, this was his good pleasure. And it, it's not that God looked into the future and said, wow, Brett, he's, he's going to be a good guy. He's going to be a faithful guy. So I'm going to pick him, and uh, I'm going to look into the future, and um, I see Will, and Will is awesome. He loves me. He is the most godly person. I'm choosing Will. It's not, right? Because who did God have to choose from? All he had was a bunch of 
sinful people. That's all he had to choose from. But it was his, it tells us here, it was his pleasure to choose people. Can I do this? I mean, this, this got me in trouble once at like a Christian school where, I don't know. Well, and anyway, it's like this. It's like, who does he choosing? He's choosing the people that are essentially giving God the finger, right? Yeah. I mean, why? I mean, you should have seen all the high school kids when I said that at the Christian school. They're like, oh, and they all look to their teachers. And like, did you hear what he said? You know, and I'm like, what's wrong? All of a sudden, sin is like offensive and personal when we put it that way, right? But this is true, and this is who God, out of his good pleasure, chooses. He says, I want you. I'm bringing you to be me and to be in me. And I'm choosing you. And so this is like the source of all blessing. It comes and starts there. And for us to be chosen, this is amazing. It tells us in verses 4 and 5 that God, when did he choose us? He chose us in eternity past. And I like one translation puts it this way. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to lavish his affection on you. That's so good. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Man, amen. I love that. So that's when it happened. That's when all this started to begin, and it was was his good pleasure. Now, does anybody know anything about horticulture, trees? Yeah, keep your hands up. I don't either. So uh, I had to to learn this. And this is really, this is a great image, I think. This is the best image of what it means to be in Christ, okay? So I looked this up on YouTube, and like, it's like to be grafted into Christ is the same as being, like, taking, like, parts of a tree that have, like, fallen off. Are, are you with me? Someone's like, yeah, I yeah. totally know what you're talking about. And you can, you take these two pieces that have been, like, kind of, they're broken off, they're kind of on their own, they're dying, to be burned up or whatever and you take them and you can cut them a little bit and you put them into like the the base of a trunk and like the springtime of year and then you cut part of the bark on that bottom am i getting this right okay cool and then and then then what do you do anybody know well yeah you got to put it in the bark and then it grows and it becomes a part of the tree so much so that as it grows and receives all that life and nourishment from the bottom of the tree, those two little sticks become the trunk and part of the trunk. Where you look at that trunk and you look at that tree and you'd have no idea where the original ended and these other ones were inserted. That's what it means that you and I are grafted into Jesus. Dead and now made alive. So God doesn't take bad people and try to make them good. That is so simplistic, right? That, that's like an insult. I mean, God's like, come on, I can do that. I can do more, right? He's not trying to take bad people and make them good. He's taking dead people and making them alive, right? Isn't that awesome? That is so good. And so like we're one with him receiving that so much so. And now this is why it takes faith because I don't know about you, I look at the guy in the mirror, and I'm like, he is nothing like Jesus. And when God lets me see behind the curtain a little bit and see my own motives, that's not a pretty sight either. Because even when I think I'm doing good stuff, my motives betray me. So, Laura, I never told her this. Once, uh, she, she, likes, she, she likes certain wine, you know, and I like to find it for her. And I'm like, she's stressed. I'm going to go get her a bottle of wine. And so I'm like, so I go to this place, and I'm looking all over. I can't find the kind of wine she likes. I'm like, oh, man, it's rush hour. 
So I go all the way across town, really busy place, super stressed out, and I'm trying to get it, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I finally find it. I'm like, yeah, this is going to make her so happy. I come home, and I'm like, hey, got you a bottle of wine. And she's like, oh, thanks, yeah. And she keeps walking. And I'm like, where is my husband of the year badge? (laughs) And God showed me that's what you were doing this for. I thought I was loving her. Sorry, honey. Uh, I thought I was loving her, but I was loving myself. And so that's what I see in the mirror. But when God sees me, he sees me in Christ, right? And there's nothing I can do to change that. And that's why Paul is so excited about this. So uh, we see that we have this election. We also see it comes through redemption. We see this in, I don't know, verses 7 or 8 to 10, I think. We're recipients of divine redemption. So redemption means to be saved from sin to something else. Now, this is interesting because it has a connotation of belonging. So if we've been saved from sin and saved to something else, that means we used to belong to something, now we belong to something else. Now, you think about that image of grafting, those, those dead pieces of wood now belong to something else, right? And they have life within them. And so what that means, contrary to what we hear in our American culture, and I love America, it's the best country in the world, but we are learning from this that we don't belong to ourselves, we either belong to sin or we belong to God's son. That is it. We don't belong anywhere else. And so we, that's why it says we've been redeemed by God through his son, Jesus Christ, and placed in him. Okay, And this is this free. And I love that in verse 8. It says God lavished this, this grace on us. And we see this more like in, in uh, Romans 5. We see... Like this awesome image, at the end of Romans 5, yeah, Romans 5, we have this idea that, okay, no matter how much you sin, God's grace is always greater. So you just, no matter how much you and I keep sinning, it keeps going up. And and that's what it means that God lavishes his grace on us. That's why Paul says in in, in the first verse of chapter 6 of Romans, he's like, so hey, should we just keep on sinning because we get more grace? He says, absolutely not. Because when we know we're loved like that, we have a different motivation to love God back. So at any rate, so this is what's going on with this divine redemption that we have from God. The next thing, not only do we have God's election and God's redemption, but we have God's divine revelation for us. And that's in verses 9 and 10. That's a little confusing. It talks about there's words like this mystery that's been revealed, and like what's the mystery? Is this like a Nancy Drew kind of thing? Oh, you remember those. And what is this mystery kind of thing that, that's been revealed to us? And the mystery is essentially this, that God is absolutely in control of everything. And he's bringing everything to unity in his son, Jesus. That's the revelation. I don't know what that does for you. I mean, one day I was up when I was a pastor, I was preaching, and I noticed that my fly was open, okay? And when I noticed that, it was a sense of relief, right? I mean, I was, well, first I was terrified. And then luckily we had a big podium, and I felt led to have every head bowed and every eye closed. (laughs) Then I was relieved, right? The revelation did 
Now, consider this. That's revelation that leads to relief. But when we look at this, the part of the blessing God has for us is that he is revealing that he is in absolute control of everything. And he's still bringing everything to unity in Jesus. And we're in Jesus. So what does that mean? When, when there's COVID and the world is going crazy, because what is going to happen? And when we have cultural uprisings in, in all over our country and people are saying, what is happening? When we get a diagnosis of cancer or we, our finances fall apart and we don't know what's going to happen with our future. You know, there are studies that show the, there's so much more anxiety about what we don't know than there is about when we do know. So, for instance, like there was a study done with people who have, with women who have uh, breast cancer and those who are waiting to see if they have breast cancer. And they, le- they measured the hormone levels in each. And you, you can guess. The, the women who were anticipating if they had breast cancer, their, their stress hormone was significantly higher than the women who already knew they had breast cancer. So that sense of being out of control, that sense of not knowing the future, it wreaks havoc on us. And we're seeing that in our culture. But what does this tell us? We have a revelation from God, right? And that revelation tells us God is in absolute control. Now, to help you understand this, this is kind of a cool illustration. I heard a story of a, a guy. Uh, these people were on this boat going on a tour. It wasn't Gilligan. Uh, so they're on this tour and this big storm. I know. you. Dun, 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 I'm not going there. <laughs> big storm breaks out. These people are freaked out, right? And they're like, first they're nervous, like, whoa, this is pretty bad. And then, you know, they're really rocking. And, and then, you know, like the waves are hitting the boat and bludgeoning it and water's flying everywhere. And they're looking for the lifeboats. They're looking for, for the life jackets, right? And someone's like, well, what is going on? You know, and everyone's freaked out, scared. So somebody goes up and, and they say, I'll just, I'll just check with the captain. They go up to the captain and there's the captain. Cigar in his mouth. You know, just kind of looks, kind of waves, smiles, just keeps going. And the person saw that and you can, you can imagine the relief. And goes back down to everybody else. Everyone's freaking out and says, we're going to be okay. And everyone says, how do you know? And the person said, I saw the captain. Yeah. That's all yeah. I need to see. Cool. Now, wait a second. The world's going crazy around us all the time. And we, individually and as a community, can say to the world in our love and in our peace with one another, and as we live our life, when everyone's scared, we can say, it's going to be okay. And they're going to say, how do you know? They're going to say, I've seen, I've seen the captain. I've seen the captain. That's why it says in Hebrews, keep your eyes riveted and focused on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And it's so easy to get so caught up in COVID and everything else. So that's what's going on here. We have this great blessing that God has revealed to us. We don't know. I don't have a clue what God's doing. I don't know when he's doing it. I don't know how he's going to do it. I just know. It's going to be okay. So we also have, uh, it tells us in verses 11 and 12 that we're, we're participating in God's inheritance. All God's like possessions are ours. Mm -hmm. Ours. You can tell that's why he's over the moon excited. 
we get to participate in that. The, the Jews in the Old Testament were looking forward to this, and now it's saying we all get to be part of this. Okay, and I want to come back to that because that's huge for us as a community. Okay, I want to talk about that in a little bit. The last thing we see in the, in the last verses in 13 to 14, we're recipients of God's divine uh, protection because he's given us his, his paraclete. What's the paraclete? What? Christ. Close. Oh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Right, because that's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. He said, hey, I'm taking off. And everyone's like, what? Yeah, I'm taking off. And I'm going to send my spirit back. Okay, the paraclete is what he said. And that's the advocate or the counselor. I'm sending him back for you guys. Okay, and that's our advocate. And so it's telling us here at the end of Ephesians in these verses that we have this and we are marked... Right? How many of you have tattoos? All right. See, I got to get one, babe. So, (laughs) but I already have one. I do. I already have one. I have nowhere where it is. It's totally invisible, but it's on me for all eternity. Right? It it, it happened to me, actually, when God first elected me. I don't know why. And it's on me for all eternity. I don't know where it is, but I'm marked with it. And it's the Holy Spirit. And it says we're sealed in it. So in those days... People, when they had like an important document or something, and they're sending it like from the emperor somewhere else, the emperor would take some wax and like put this seal on it, and it would say, this belongs to the emperor. It cannot be opened unless it's opened by the emperor. And so we are sealed in that same way by the Holy Spirit. God has put his stamp of, a, of approval on you, so to speak, right? And you're sealed, and I'm sealed with that for all eternity. That we are his. And that's what it's being talking about here. Well, you and I have great protection. That no matter what happens, we are protected. Now you're going to say, but wait a second. Sickness happens. Adversity happens. Trials come our way. And you're absolutely right. But when we know Jesus like Paul does, and as we live in community in Christ, there is a pleasure that comes our way where it doesn't matter what happens to us. There was, I saw in, in Lyon, France, when I was there, the first Christian martyr. She was a little younger than, than us here. Well, definitely me. She was like 17. And they, they put her on a wall. And over the wall, uh, I saw where the wall was, the original wall. And where they threw her over was, was all these lions. And they were going to absolutely devour her. And in the midst of that persecution and that adversity, she turned, this 17-year-old slave girl turned to her adversaries. And she said, about Jesus, he is worth it. And then she jumped over. So Jesus is so amazing that we can, he can do that in us, individually and as a community. That's incredible. I once heard a, uh, a guy, Tony Campbell, anybody ever hear of Tony Campbell? Mm-hmm. He gives a great illustration when he was teaching sociology at Penn State. He's like, at the University of Pennsylvania, he's like, uh, yeah, so I'm teaching. And as I'm teaching my first day of class, there's a student in the back. And he says, who cares? And Tony Kempel is a little uh, perturbed. And he's like, hey, you know, you need to be quiet. And so he keeps on teaching the guy. And the student says, who cares? And he says, hey, you need to sit down or I'm going to throw you out of my class and I don't want to hear another word. And the student said, who cares? Who cares? Right. <laughs> and Ken Paul is like, 
You understand, if I throw you out of this class, I'm going to throw you out of the class completely. You're going to get an F. And the student said, who cares? He said, if I throw you out of this class and you fail this class, you're not going to be able to get the kind of grades you need to be able to get a good job, to be able to have the lifestyle that this world says you have to have, to which he said, who cares? Who cares? And Campolo says, you're not a Christian until you can look at everything this world has to offer you and to be able to say, who cares? I have Christ. I am in Christ. And that's all I need. That's all I want. And that's never something I can produce on my own. I need to be around people who are in Christ and receive the life that's within you. And I need God's spirit, and I need Jesus to produce that within me, where I can say, who cares? So, now what does this mean for us as a community, okay? So this is where I kind of want to get you know, your input on some of this, too. So, I think it, what happens is... Well, let me just ask this. Have you ever met somebody who just smells like Jesus. What do I mean by that? There was a governor in in Minnesota once, and I had him come and speak to my church, and he talked about, I think his granddad, guys used to wear top hats all the time, and uh, I think it was uh, the granddad said to his daughter, he said, hey, can you you go get my my hat from the cloakroom? And so she goes and gets the hat, and she, she brings it back, and he was really surprised. He said, that cloakroom was filled. Every hat looks exactly the same. How did you know that one was my hat? And she said, it smelled like you. It smelled like you. Have you ever met somebody that smells like Jesus? Right? I know somebody. When I had had coffee with, with Nick about a year ago, he smelled like Jesus. I was like, what is that smell? (laughs) <laughs> what is that smell? That's a beautiful smell. What is that? Is that like a cologne? What? No, it's not a cologne. It's it's Christ. Gross. That might have been hairspray. Yeah, probably was. Sorry, it wasn't Christ. Yeah. I think when 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 we live this out. Now remember, Paul is not speaking to to just one person. Isn't, isn't that kind of how we read the Bible a lot of times? We read it like God's talking just to me. And I'd hear people say to me, and I like this, you know, like people would say to me if I preached, I'd be like, I felt like you were, you know, God was speaking just to me this whole time. And I'm like, well, praise God. Well, he was speaking to all of us too. You know, it's, God does speak directly to us. But the context here is that Paul is writing to a group of people. See, we in our individualistic American culture, we read it very individualistically. And what everything I just shared with you, Paul is saying to a community and saying, hey, this is true of all of you, right? And so I remember I told my church, this did not take root amongst many things, and I, but I said this. I said, you know, look at all of our worship songs. It's all about me. Mm-hmm. It's all, all, look at all the singular pronouns that we have in our worship songs. Right? God, is so much of his word is revealed to a community of people. And that's what makes you all so unique here. Because you're valuing community. 
which is so countercultural to our country and our culture in our country. And I think many, and I'm a therapist, I'm a psychotherapist. I know people are needing community. In fact, I came across a study done in Spain with people who were alcoholics. And they said, you know what we do with alcoholics? We penalize them. We, we're really punitive and penalize them. You know what they need? We need to surround them with community. And so what they did in Spain and somewhere in Canada, they did the same thing. They found with rats. They said, okay, you know what? With these rats, we got a, a bottle of, like, heroin. I don't know. Can that come in liquid form? Don't answer. <laughs> don't want to know. Let's say, you know, they had some liquid form of some powerful drug, and then on the other side of the cage, they had water. And you know what? The rats always went to the drug. Always. And then, you know, what they did is they put like different um, gymnastic things, exercise things, you know, in, in the cage. And then they put in like other rats. And once there was other rats amongst them, they had no desire to go to the drug at all. Mm-hmm. And so they concluded people might be the same way. Mm-hmm. And that's why in Spain and in this part in Canada, what they did is they got rid of all of their punitive measures and they took all the money that they put in these punitive measures and they directed it to helping people get involved in community. And it worked. And in our culture, the message is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. Go make it a great day. I hear that one all the time with business professionals. Go make it a great day. I, I can't. I don't know. Jesus can do that for me. I don't know. But I can't. Our Christian culture in America needs to value community that you all are really trying to put forward as a core value. And I want to read something else that I thought was pretty cool. Because when it's talking here that we share in God's inheritance with the Jews and the Gentiles, what's really neat is, is we don't grasp how radically wild that is, right? I mean, I've got a friend named Ernest. He's a pastor. He's from India. <coughs> And he's just weird different, man. I'm telling you, he's, you know, I was with an evangelical free church. He went to an assembly of God church. We were you know, really different. And man, we are such good friends. And brought him into my church. And my church is like, this guy's weird. <laughs> I said, well, let's go do it. He, he can get into all these like low income apartments. So let's go with them and figure out how they're developing relationships. I'm not kidding. Ernest would go, he'd just go up like eight o'clock at night in January. It's pitch dark in Minnesota. So it's like minus 10, minus five, pitch dark. And he'd, he'd ring the doorbell, no answer. We're like, oh, okay, let's go. And he wouldn't budge. So then he starts knocking on the door. And I'm like, Ernest, dude, <laughs> kind of a social faux pas here, right? <laughs> Follow my lead, you know? And everyone's like, this guy is rude. Because after that, he goes up to the window. <laughs> he starts knocking on the window. And I'm like, oh, what? this is such an embarrassment. Everyone's going to have my head on a platter for leading them to this guy. And I'm thinking, I hear the door start to open up. Someone's going to start yelling, right? Who are you? What are you doing here? And this little kid opens the door, big smile. And he says, Pastor Ernest. And he was so excited to see him. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, it's not how we do it in the suburbs, right? This is weird, different, but incredibly cool. And he's been with these kids since they were this high. 
and they're, you know, like 17 now. I learned so much and had to go through a ton of battles in my church just to keep us working with him. But we needed that. We needed that diversity. Because we are co- there's not Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. And I want to read this to you and really try to hang on this for a moment. Well, first of all, what's the first thing we're told to do once we become a follower of Jesus Christ? What's one of the first things you never... If anybody gets this, give you all the money I have in this pocket, okay? (laughs) Stop doing the bad things you were doing. No, but a good answer. Positive strokes. What are, what's the first thing we're, supposed, we're called? After we give our life as a living sacrifice to Christ, what are we supposed to do? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's what the prostitute was. Supposed to do. And I'm saying go with that. I'm not going to argue with Jesus. Okay, I mean, go and sin no more. Not a bad idea. Somebody else. Go make disciples. No, that's not the first thing we're told. I knew nobody was going to get this. You know why? You know why? Because we're American Christians. Um, you're supposed to go to the church, like oh, the community. Close. That is so good. That is so good. One more. Once you become Christian, you become baptized. All right. I can't argue with that one too. All right. Yeah, that's a good one. I want to tell you. What's your name? Daisy. Daisy. I'm going to tell you, Daisy, you were really close. Because in Romans 12, it tells us, in light of everything I just said to you in the first 11 chapters, Paul is saying, now this is what the appropriate thing is to do. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Jesus. And then the very next thing we're told to do, in Romans 12, starting in 3 through 5, it says, now consider, have sober assessment of yourself. Oh, can, can I read it? Can I? Yeah. I'm going to... Uh, no extra charge, okay? <laughs> this is so good. Because we don't get this, except for Daisy, because we're, we're American Christians. All right, so this is what it says. All right, so after we give ourselves a living sacrifice, all right, it says, I say to every one of you, do not think. So it's not, we're not supposed to do anything. We're supposed to think differently, right? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So this is what it looks like. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now we have to supposed to think of ourselves differently in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so, here it is in verse uh, 5, so, key prepositional phrase, in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the other. You belong to each other. We belong in Christ, and we belong to each other. Isn't that interesting? The very first thing we're told after to give our lives as a living sacrifice to Jesus is to realize got to think differently. You don't belong to yourself. You never did. You belong to sin. Now, you belong in Christ, and you are in Christ. You belong to each other. I want to read you a cool quote and let this sink. Oh, let me tell you one other thing. In Acts, we see this. Acts 13, we see this. We see an example of this. The church in Antioch, we see the church leaders, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius. 
Barnabas was a Jew, Simeon was likely a black man from Niger, and Lucius was uh, from North Africa, sort of by Egypt, okay? So not only in this church do we have Jews and Gentiles that were different, but they came from different classes, different cultures, different backgrounds, okay? Why? Because God is creating a whole new human race in himself, in his son. A whole new human race with none of these distinctions, None of these divisions at all, okay? And so I want to read you this quote. I can't remember who said it. I certainly am not this smart, but this is good. In fellowship, in this kind of fellowship, of those who are bound together by personal loyalty to Jesus Christ, the relationship of love reaches an intimacy and intensity unknown anywhere else on the planet. Friendship between the friends of Jesus of Nazareth is unlike any other friendship. And this ought to be the normal experience within the church. Where it is experienced, it is one of the most convincing evidences of the continuing activity of Jesus among them. That is so powerful. That is so good. And I heard of these guys that lived this out. They were persecuted Christians in the Middle East, and they came together for a missionary thing and teaching and and respite because they've all been persecuted, and they've left their families, and they lost their families, and they came together, and they didn't know each other at all. And when they came together for the first time, because they're in Christ, they were just laying all over each other. They were hugging one another. They were arm in arm with each other. They never had been together before, but they had had this fellowship in the sufferings of Christ together, that instantly when they were together, there was this powerful bond. And some of the American pastors were like scratching their head like, what is this? I've never seen this. So I just want to lay that out to you and throw it out to you now and say, what do you think? What are the implications for you all as a community of believers? A community dependent, grafted into Christ, and interdependent upon one another. Where is the church, where's our blind spots where we don't understand community? What happens in community that gets in the way from us being all that God tells us we are? How can you guys overcome that and be the most convincing evidence of the continuing activity of Jesus among you. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, just like what you were saying about motives, um, uh, we were talking about today in class of just uh, removing the performance-based. Uh, that's a huge one for me, of not having an agenda and a conversation, not having like a solution for someone else when God shows it to me, be the center of the navigation of that relationship and just like completely removing the motive of, of self in in people, like in community. We can be in community but be so self-centered in the motives of our everyday life that we don't grow together. Mm-hmm. And like that's, it's so, I try so hard to not do that. It is so hard, isn't it? What, so it's like, are you saying like we have to avoid trying to fix each other? Yeah, but even ourselves, like even even just um, 
even just the, the the pressure of performance we put on ourselves to be to do good works for people like just removing the stress of what oh, I can do like or that once I stop doing those things are people going to leave you know I love that that's such, like it can be taken from a huge thing to so simple like that's so good that's really profound, and I'm, I'm thrilled you said that because I think you nailed it. And I think, I heard another therapist put it this way. We're all looking for A-words from other people. We're looking for adoration. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for approval. So we go and get them a nice bottle of wine because we want their A-word, right? And so what happens is we perform to get the A-words from other people. Right, that's what Romans one's talking about. Like we, 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 we started living for and serving the created rather than the creator because we're thinking I can get this a word from the created. And then some of the research has shown when we tie getting an a word with performance, it becomes a toxic relationship. And that's what, what's that? That's another word for it. Right, can be codependency. And the, so where's the solution? It's not looking to that from each other, but it's because we're in Christ, I have all of God's A-words already. And Jesus modeled this, right? Where did, did Jesus ever get an A-word in his life? Well, people might have thought he was an A-word, but in a negative, right? But he did get a different A-word that was very positive. Where did he get it from? And what was it? From the Father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was never faced by anybody else telling, anybody else shooting on him, right? People were should, shooting on. There we go. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is, talk about toxic in a community. In, in, in Christian community, when we should on each other, that is toxic. But G- Jesus was being should on by other people all the time. And it's a shouldy thing to do, right? <laughs> so how was Jesus not phased by that? Jesus was not phased by that. He wasn't tempted by that. He didn't kowtow to it because he had all his A-words. Everywhere he looked for his A-word was God the Father. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So you bring up such a great point. That performance mode, only Jesus can replace that within us. But we need to be aware of it. That I'm looking for your A-words. I'm hoping when I get done, I get an A-word or two. You know, Otherwise, I'll be like, geez, I blew it. Nobody likes me. I'm no good. I stink. I'm no... Right? So we look for that from each other. But if we can be aware of that, that that's normal. That it helps. That, I'm so glad you brought that up. What other thoughts do you guys have? Yeah. What are some ways we should? What is how do we like should on people? Oh, let me throw it out here. What do you guys think? I am confident every one of us has experienced a should on from somebody else. What does that look like? Are you sure you really want to wear that tonight? What's the should message in that? Yeah, you, should you should dress more conservatively. Yeah. 
if you really love Jesus, right? What are what are other shoulds we hear? How have you been should on within a Christian community? That's a great question. What's that? Right. Should you make that decision? All my clients, I work with all my patients, they, I exercise should from their vocabulary. Because it is, I'm not telling you guys, I'm not kidding, it is so toxic to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that pours out in community with each other. So think about, you know when you've been should on by somebody else. Right. I mean, it's a great question. If we think about it, it's there. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I want to sensitize you guys to this because it's happening all the time. And you know, who shoulds on you the most? Ourselves. 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 Yeah, you know, you have about 70,000 thoughts a day. How many of those are negative? 50,000. Who said 50,000? Amazing. Wow, you're exactly right. You're off by one. It was 50,001. But (laughs) so close. Think of that, 70,000 thoughts a day, 50,000 are negative. Here's my 50,000 in one, I should have known. Yeah, <laughs> you really should have, I can't believe it. That was so good, you like made my day, that is so good. So, what does that tell us? We should on ourselves a lot. It's, it's so toxic, you guys done, this is, I'm so glad you brought that up too, seriously. We ought to be sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Can you give the practical application of what words to replace should on with? Absolutely, could. You take the S and the H out and you replace it with a C. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you, you really shouldn't do that. You couldn't do that. You could do that versus you shouldn't do it. If I say should, now it's a moral mandate. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a moral category, it's an absolute. Hey, should I should I really wear this? And I asked Angie tonight. Like I had like running pants on and a shirt, and I'm like, Hey, should I wear this tonight? And she's like, Well, Nick wears. And I'm like, All right. And I'm like, He smells like Jesus, so I want to. What? Basically, what Angie said is, you know, she said you could wear whatever you want. That's, that was essentially the message. You could wear whatever you want. It was no, there was no should at all. And I did feel free to do whatever I wanted, to wear whatever I wanted. I didn't mention the Crocs that you used to wear. So. The Crocs? I remember those Crocs. Yeah. Now, shoulds are appropriate if something is truly a moral issue. But most things are, are not really moral issues. A lot of things, as we get older, we find are kind of gray, okay? Mm-hmm. So we've got to be you know, careful. How do you, I can change the word could for should and still have just as much doubt with, between two things. Like that doesn't take right. away or help me create a solution. Like how do you change the word should to could to put it in a place where I can create more peace in making decisions. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Now, the reason it doesn't work is because of what you said. I still doubt. I don't believe it. So we can change it, and I can still, I can say, could, well, I could wear something else tonight, but inside, if I don't have a sense of peace, it's because I'm still not really 
believing it. So I can go through the actions, and the actions can maybe help transform my internal state, but ultimately I have to believe that this is true. That's why it says in Hebrews 4, at the end of chapter 3 and 4, it says about the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, the only reason they never entered into God's Sabbath rest, that promised land, I always thought it was because of everything they did wrong. They're always like screwing up and blowing it, right? And it was stunning to me. The reason they never entered into God's rest and God's peace, it says, was because of their unbelief. It wasn't their bad behavior. It was the unbelief that fueled their bad behavior. And that's what we do in Christian communities, don't we? We focus on the behavior. And we try to change each other's behavior, and we should on each other, when really it's a belief issue, it's a heart issue, and that's way above my pay grade. Right? That's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. So I have to believe it. And if I'm not living in peace, I'm not believing it. So in other words, if, if I, this is what I try to remember and I don't, but if I don't have serenity in my life at some time, there's something I haven't surrendered to God and really believe that it's, it's his responsibility. So if I don't have serenity, I haven't surrendered something. So we have to, what we, the could sort of helps facilitate believing, helps remind us, but ultimately it comes down to faith and believing that, you know what, I'm in Christ. I have all the A words of all eternity from the highest authority and the greatest source of pleasure. And if I believe that, I can go anywhere and do anything. I can walk off a wall and say he's worth it. But it's a really good question. It, it, it's yeah, it goes really deep, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Any other thoughts? I just feel like a lot of like not to be like this, but a lot of like our conversations right now have been like there's a nail and we're just hitting all all around it. When like the truth is like, which this is not accredited to like my own thought. I mean, part of it is, but part of it is from another talk that I listened to. But, like, as soon as we, like, give up what has God given us, which is our free will, and we allow God to control everything that, that we do, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, then we don't have any issues with coulds or shoulds or anything like that. Because if, if we're not in our own free will and acting of flesh, we're acting of Jesus, then we're never going to doubt ourselves. Because Jesus never doubted himself or his Father. And so I think as soon as we're just, like, surrender and base everything in Christ, then everything else is taken care of and everything else falls into place. You know what I'm saying? That's my thought. Yeah. Amen, my brother. That is so good. Did we get that? that was on this recording, that was good. I hope that came through. I know it's not your intention. It's my intention. That, that, that was good stuff. Because you're right. It really comes down to surrendering everything and believing he's got me. And believing everything we just read that Paul is strenuously trying to communicate to us. What's and that song, I Surrender All? I Surrender All. Do you want to, do you want to lead us? Or? No. no. Yeah. So, but as a therapist, when I first started doing therapy, I didn't believe this. I thought these people are paying good money for me to fix them. And I felt so much pressure. I was stressed out all the time. And I'm like, oh, so they're talking. I'm not even listening anymore. I'm like, all right, so what can I tell them? What, what do I need to tell? I gotta come, God, help me come up with something like super profound. They're looking to me. I've got to, you know, provide. I have to do something. So much stress. 
And God took me through something to help me realize. And I write when I get my little legal pad and I sit down in my chair, I write four R's at the top of the page. And I want to put them in like a tattoo and put them on my hand, but somebody in my life won't let me do that. So, just kidding. She's probably right. She's, he's shitting on me. <laughs> I'm still working her over. <laughs> but it's really helpful. You know, it is really helpful for me, right? Because the four hours are this. And I just, I just remember, as I, and I pray it really quick as I start every session. Lord, help me realize you are already at work in this person's life. Yeah. I rely on your work in this person's life. I choose to rest in your work in this person's life. And I rejoice in your work in this person's life because Jesus will always do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so that takes, talk about pressure and talk about what you're talking about. It's just believing that I have to recalibrate. Every hour I have to recalibrate on that. Otherwise, I will go right back to putting all the pressure on me. And that's what every one of us does here. And if we can be aware of that in community, that the pressure's off, the joy that can overflow and the healing that can happen that can allow us to, to be the most convincing evidence of the continuing activity of Jesus among us. Powerful what is here. Any other thoughts? I don't want to cut anybody off, but I don't want to go too long. I might not get any word. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I realize you're at work. In this person's life. I rely on your work in this person's life. I choose to rest in this person, in your work in this person's life. And I rejoice in your work in this person's life. And it's interesting, I can't do three of the four. I have to do all four. When I do all four, I'm at peace. Yeah. So your very first question was, What's something you've been a part of? Yeah. Can you just give like one or two like really like from all of your experience uh, with studies of how can we benefit from being a part of our community the best? Like what what can we actively be doing to make our community the best? You know, honestly, I think you guys have touched on it. That's why I was so glad uh, of the things you all have brought up. These were things on my radar. And honestly, I was praying. I'm like, God, there's so much I want to share. But I'm just going to stop. And I'm just going to say, wherever you want to lead it. And these were things near and dear to my heart that you guys have brought up. That I'm right now I'm thanking God because he brought it to the surface. These are the things I think are the most important. When, when we can choose to, to stop, you nailed it right from the start. The biggest issue I think that gets in the way of Christian community is this performance mentality. It's the performance mentality that leads us to isolate from one another. Because what, what if somebody sees me for who I really am? That's what leads to isolation. And it's the performance that, that leads to, to anxiety amongst us too. Right? What are they going to think? What are they going to? How are they going to react? Can I wear jogging pants? Must I wear jeans? I mean, seriously, I asked the question. 
I'm becoming and leaving. And I was, you know, that's, it's, it's in us. It's right there. That's why I love this passage in, in Ephesians. The pressure's off. And if we can live realizing and remembering, we don't have to shoot on each other, especially ourselves. We don't have to live in performance mode. We have every A word for all eternity from God the Father through his son Jesus, confirmed in his spirit that's within us. This can be an incredible thing. And, and be sensitized to the shoulds. You know, I intentionally put it that way. It's kind of an old therapist saying, you know, don't should on one another because it sounds like something else. I can't figure out what it is. But it's, it's something to become sensitized to and, and really try to avoid. Say, ah, ah, are you shooting on me? You know, and, and you can catch yourself. Go ahead. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just going to say everything that you said just makes me think of casting out fear. There it is. Perfect fear cast out love. Right. <laughs> I think that's true too, isn't it? I never thought of it that way. Perfect fear does cast out love. That is so good. That is so good. And the alternative is true too, right? Yeah, it's good stuff. It goes both ways. And we're very fearful, anxious. We all struggle with anxiety. Every one of us does. Yeah, that's normal. I just maybe one thing is normalize that. We're all anxious. Yeah. If we can just love each other by the power of Christ within us. Yeah. Well, I'm like losing pounds up here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think urgent about like community living and how do we do this well? I think. Uh, uh, anyway. Oh, you weird. Stop. About your name. Like consistently, um, like th- that's how the Lord treats us. 
And so, like, we do need to treat each other that way. Mm-hmm. We're going to choose to love and honor each other. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. That's good. If, if only we could.